Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, May the 22nd. This week we're talking diabetes as the latest issue of the Lancet dated May the 23rd to the 29th is diabetes themed. The issue will be going to the American Diabetes Association meeting in a couple of weeks time. In the podcast we're going to focus specifically on managing and treating diabetes in the child and adolescent population. This is a topic of a review in the diabetes themed issue and earlier I spoke to one of the authors of this paper, Dr Diane Werrett from the University of Toronto. Hello, my name is Diane Warrett. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist at the Hospital for Sick Children in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Diane Warrett, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet podcast. You're one of the authors of a review paper. Very interesting reading it is too. It's in our diabetes-themed issue of the Lancet, and it's specifically looking at diabetes care in children and adolescents. Before we go into some of the detail, can you just paint a picture? Tell us some of the statistics. How bigger a problem is this worldwide? The population is quite well defined in terms of type 1 diabetes where we have quite good data of um, the problem around the world. It's a little less well defined for the other types of diabetes, genetic forms and for type 2. So in type 1 diabetes, uh, the incidence varies widely across the world so that in northern European countries it's much higher. So for example, Finland has the highest incidence in the world at 57 cases per 100,000 children per year. The other countries of high incidence are the UK, Canada, the US, and Australia, and they're all over 20 cases per 100,000 children per year. But if you look at Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa, the rates are much, much lower than that. Concerning type 1 diabetes, we'll come to talk about type 2 disease in a moment. How has treatment changed in the past couple of decades? Because I note in, in your paper, you refer a few times, don't you, to what seems like a, a landmark time, and certainly in, ter in terms of, of uh, research publication, and that is the publication of DCCT. Perhaps just tell us about that. That was two decades ago, wasn't it? Yeah, so the DCCT was the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial that was published in 1993. So it is two decades ago. And that was the definitive study that really proved that intensive management of type 1 diabetes aiming for very good metabolic control significantly reduced the risk of complications such as kidney disease, eye disease. The people who participated in that study have continued to be followed since that time and so now for 30 years and we're still seeing uh, benefits of, uh, of better glucose control even 30 years later. It was really a very very significant study. That study did include a group of adolescents where we learned a lot about the adolescents weren't able to obtain as good metabolic control as the adults, but still the intensively managed group did have uh, much better out, uh, better metabolic outcomes and long-term outcomes. But really the implication of that for pediatric diabetes care was that striving for lower hemoglobin A1C, which is how we measure metabolic control of uh, diabetes, has very significant impact on improving long-term health. And it really brought about a whole kind of change in treatment philosophy where diabetes teams and, you know, that's the multidisciplinary healthcare team, including nurses, dietitians mental health uh, professionals, as well as the um, pediatricians and pediatric endocrinologists really are aiming for lower blood glucoses, lower hemoglobin A1Cs, 
And it really brought about all of the major groups involved in diabetes care, whether it's the International Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes, American Diabetes Association, Canadian Diabetes Association, Australasian Diabetes Association, all really setting targets for metabolic control. Uh, sometime early in earlier days, based on age, and more recently, targets have been generally simplified to a target of a hemoglobin A1C of 7.5%, so that teams really have a target to strive for and that families know that target and also work toward that. I should have said at the beginning as well, quite appropriately, your paper talks about diabetes treatment care for children and young adults in terms of changes, controversies, and consensus, which I, I think seems a good framework, actually, for this podcast, because you touch on technology, how technology presumably has already made an impact in treatment of type 1 disease and could do so more in the future. Technology has really evolved uh, on two fronts. So the more prevalent technology is the use of uh, continuous uh, subcutaneous insulin infusion, or what's more commonly known as insulin pumps. This is a insulin given through a pump that continuously delivers a very small amount of rapid-acting insulin, and then additional amounts are given by the patient whenever they eat or to correct high blood sugars. In many ways, it it simplifies diabetes care and it really has become a very common way of managing type 1 diabetes. The controversy comes in that in the large, particularly the large population-based um, studies that have been done, it doesn't necessarily improve metabolic control and that most of the studies show that you can attain good metabolic control or unfortunately poor metabolic control no matter what method you are using to give insulin. It really much more matters how well whatever method is being used is actually used and how able the person with diabetes and their family are able to manage the condition. The insulin pump, though, does have some lifestyle improvements, and so I think that's part of the reason it's become a very popular way of managing type 1 diabetes. So that's the one piece of technology that has become very widely used. The other piece of technology is continuous glucose monitoring, so that's a system that allows continuous monitoring of the glucose in the subcutaneous fluid. And that technology in adults over 25 has also been shown to improve control. But in the young, uh, or I guess the adolescent slash young adult and in the pediatric populations hasn't been able to show that. And that's been by and large because it hasn't been widely used. So even in studies where uh, people volunteer to be part of it or clearly very interested in, in using the technology, uh, once they have to use it for a number of months, it just is cumbersome and people tend not to use it. So really, uh, it's penetrated the pediatric type 1 diabetes world to a much smaller extent. The biggest advance in technology, though, is really the technology that puts those two pieces together. So this is the what's called, been called the artificial pancreas, where someone would wear a continuous glucose sensor that then would communicate with the insulin pump. And there are multiple algorithms that have been developed to 
match the amount of insulin being delivered through a pump to what is needed based on the interstitial blood or interstitial glucoses. And that technology is really moving forward quickly. And we have a table in our paper that outlines just the studies that have been published even just in the past year. And you, you can see that, uh, it, that this technology is really showing promise and that it's working quite well to control blood glucoses overnight and when people aren't eating. And it's really, its challenge right now is really to develop ways of handling meals um, and just ways of it becoming simpler and more accurate and more reliable so that it could become something that is on the market and everyone's able to use. How far do you think could we be away from a practical um, application of these artificial, the artificial pancreas? There obviously will be a number of steps required. It may actually come to market in those kinds of steps so that there may be approval for a system that could be used for day-to-day use that would still require patients to give additional insulin to go with meals because that problem is going to be a lot tougher to overcome given current insulins as we just don't have insulins that work fast enough to kind of respond to the rapid rise in glucose and fall after a meal. One of the biggest issues will be uh, approval through all the regulatory agencies um, in all the countries around the world. And the regulators will obviously be very interested in safety of these systems in real-to-life, day-to-day situations. So that, I think, will be one of the big hurdles. We'll be making sure that all of the safety is in place so that if there's a malfunction, that there's uh, a, you know, good systems that would recognize that and allow a patient to, cor- you know, to correct a malfunction. That bar, I think, will be quite high before the, the, the systems are completely uh, automated. But there, I suspect there will be progression of, of different systems that do have you know, increasing capabilities down the road. It's always very hard to predict, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a kind of earlier, early version available on the market in the next few years. You touch on research a few times again in the paper, but intriguingly, you, you talk about um, the onset of clinical trials for diabetes prevention. This presumably is type 2 disease. No, this is actually for, for type 1 uh, as well. So in the the type 1 world, it's been recognized for a number of decades now that there are antibodies present in the blood long before people actually present with the clinical with clinical type 1 diabetes. And that obviously, knowing that you can predict, naturally leads to, you know, what could one do to prevent. And so there have been a number of studies done, and there are a number of studies ongoing. Nothing yet has conclusively been proven to to prevent or at least delay the onset of type 1 diabetes, uh, but it is a very active area of research right now. Type 2 diabetes obviously is certainly a problem we tend to associate with the older adult community, but it also has an impact in the child and adolescent diabetic community as well. We see type 2 diabetes in adolescents and in, in, in children kind of once they've reached puberty. It is particularly a problem for children and adolescents with obesity, and most often these children have additional risk factors for type 2 diabetes. So they, have, they may have a family history, they may come from an ethnic group that has higher prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So the typical adolescent with type 2 diabetes has at least a couple of risk 
factors that obviously make a disease that you, you know that we associate with present, presenting in older ages as adults present in uh, you know at the age of 14, 15, 16. Um, so these young people with type 2 diabetes are really loaded with risk factors and they tend to have a more rapidly progressive loss of insulin, difficult to control diabetes. In the overall prevalence of diabetes in children, it's still a, quite a small number. But if you look at new onset cases in the 15 to 19 year age group, particularly in the U.S., they represent a significant proportion of new onset uh, diabetes in that age group. The stage we're at now, uh, given all the context and, and things we've just discussed, is it fair to say that certainly in terms of the relatively recent past, past 20 years, we're managing type 1 disease in a much better way, partly because of the implementation of, of DCCT, but potentially the increase in type 2 disease in this population is, is where the focus needs to be? I would say, I certainly agree with the, the with your statement. Um, we are managing type 1 better, and we, you know, we see it in uh, the reduction in hemoglobin A1Cs overall, and in also in the improved health of people with type 1 diabetes in terms of risk of renal disease and, and also in terms of longevity. The challenge is that the overall metabolic control during adolescence is still far above the target. So we still do have challenging years in order to, to help manage diabetes better and reduce the impact of those, those kind of adolescent, young adult years that could have or poor control could have in their future. But I agree, you know, certainly um, the challenge of uh, the type 2 population and finding uh, ways to prevent and to better manage type 2 diabetes in adolescence is still a big challenge. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I know you're on call, so uh, you're a, a busy a busy person, but uh, Diane Werritt on the line from uh, Toronto. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome.